0: You are listening to Hungry Books, a podcast about the best books ever written on the subject of food. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food history writer, cook, and author. And each episode, I present a book that will change your life. Well, hello everyone, Hungry Books is back and I'm very excited to start the second season of the show with a very favourite book of mine. Which, yes, is a sort of academic work, but in my opinion it is quite accessible and a total gem of the ever-so-growing works that are part of the prolific field of food studies. Is still a reasonably young discipline, That has its roots in several other disciplines, like sociology, history, economy, psychology and anthropology. Feeding the people, the politics of the potato, is a great example of how to weave a multidisciplinary approach to explore the genealogy of food policies, democracy, liberalism and health and nutrition as political issues. I think that to understand how food history came to exist first as a field of study and now as a literary genre, let me give you a snapshot of its origins. While it is true that food has been part of many research works in the humanities and medical sciences, its role as a central subject of study is fairly recent, and we can trace back this change to the seminal work of a group of French academics. Among them were Lucien Lefebvre, a philosopher and sociologist, and historians Marc Bloch and Fernand Braudel, who founded an academic journal called Annals d'Histoire économique et sociale, a project that started way back in 1929 this journal still exists under the name of Annals Histoire Sciences Sociales. These French scholar's intention was to challenge and change classical historical studies by no longer focusing on the traditional approach of highbrow political history of the ruling classes, but focusing instead on the social and cultural aspects of life and social transformations through history by developing new research methods. They understood history as an accumulation of changes influenced by many factors. And really, food became a great way to explore this, allowing the intersection of many areas such as agricultural history, demographics, spirituality, medicine, technology, and religion. And another big transformation they made is the shift in the research strategy, bringing the perspective of the so-called study of the mentalities that made visible the behavioral, cultural, and ideological changes that occur in societies over time. And this also came with an intense transdisciplinary collaboration between history, sociology, philosophy and other areas. All in all, they tried to create new paths to study and interpret cultures in all their wonderful complexity, allowing different voices and perspectives to work together. Pretty much in nine of the previous 10 books I've featured here, have been absolutely influenced by the Annals School. And in many ways, I think this book, the one that we'll be exploring today, also follows the footsteps of anthropologist Sidney Mintz whose classic book Sweetness and Power almost single-handedly created the subdiscipline of food anthropology, exploring the history of sugar through a mixed framework of historical, cultural and sociological elements. Feeding the people the politics of the potato is what we call a commodities biography, in which Dr. Earl uses potatoes to explore in depth the history of food policies, the relationships between land, power, botany, science, health and, of course, economy and colonialism. This last aspect is framed in the context of post-colonial studies, meaning the consequences of European colonialism that brought together the so-called Old and New Worlds, and with it an intense mercantilist flow of edible commodities, including crops such as corn, cacao, rice, wheat, coffee, tomatoes, avocados, chilies, and of course potatoes that were disseminated around the world. The historical period when these occurred was what we know today as the Colombian Exchange, a concept that was coined by historian Alfred Crosby in 1972 in his book called The Columbian Exchange, The Biological and Cultural Consequences of 1492, that changed forever our understanding of the global, historical and environmental changes that human civilizations have created. In feeding the people, Key discussions are centred around the political and ideological debates and paradoxes between government-led food and dietary policies and individual freedoms, free market, wars, and food insecurity. There is a lot to unpack here, I know, and we will explore all of these in detail. So let's see. This book is divided in six chapters and it closes down with a rather sweet homage to the forgotten potato heroes who championed the cultivation and consumption of potatoes and a poignant analysis of some of the unresolved debates and paradoxes and the discussions that are still very much unresolved. Well, we have a lot of potatoing to do, so let's get on with the show. Chapter 1. Immigrant Potatoes It is a truth universally acknowledged that the accepted origin of potatoes is the beautiful Casama Valley in Peru, where a lengthy and crucial process of domestication was carried by the ancestors of the Inca. And according to the archaeobotanical evidence, it is this part of the world where indigenous people have cultivated and enjoyed potatoes for more than 9,000 years. But... I nearly fell off my chair when I read that there's recent and very exciting evidence that proves that hunter-gatherers in present-day Utah also ate potatoes around 12,900 years ago. What?! Which goes to show that the prehistory of American civilizations is way more complex and surprising than we thought. And that also proves that the roots of migration were not unidirectional, meaning ancient hunter-gatherers really roamed back and forth through large regions, quite possibly, or rather definitely, also carrying and disseminating crops. The author, for a very good reason, plays about with the timeline. So to make a more nuanced story, I reorganized the ideas and key moments to give them a sort of chronological context and of course reflect my personal take on this book as someone with a Latin American perspective of food studies and food history. Sadly, behind the presence of potatoes, corn, beans, cacao, and tomatoes, among many other crops, at European tables, there is the little-explored history of greed, domination, and genocide. The very first accounts about the Americas that arrived in Europe came in the form of letters and other documents from conquistadors and clergymen who travelled shortly after the initial success of military expeditions, while the conquest was still unfolding. In the case of Mexico, it was Hernán Cortés who led the first and largest military campaigns and had the duty to report and update the Spanish monarchs on a regular basis, which he did by writing numerous and extensive letters known as Cartas de Relación, or first-hand accounts, of New Spain, which were heavily embellished to suit a narrative that portrayed Cortés as a savvy and successful conquistador. However, 47 years later, after the fall of the Mexica Empire, Bernal Díaz del Castillo, who took part in the conquest, wrote a famous memoir called The True History of the Conquest of New Spain, trashing Cortes's famous accounts, aiming to set the record straight about the real unfolding of these events. Now, personal quarrels aside, these documents and many others fed the imagination of Europeans with a mix of facts and many manicured narratives that were also counterbalanced by the work of religious historians who worked side by side, indigenous scribes, in the case of Mexico, most of them were Mexica, and these clergymen were... Fray Bernardino de Sahagún, Fray Toribio de Benavente, Juan de Torquemada, Fray Diego de Durán, and Francisco Javier Clavijero, among many others, from whom the world came to know about the culture's history, traditions, languages, and many other aspects of the native indigenous civilizations. The subsequent colonization of Central and South America followed a similar pattern to that of Mexico. And the accounts of this period also depict two versions of the same story. One focused on more accurate accounts that recorded the deep cultural impact of these events, which contrasted with the version of army men and civil servants who invariably depicted a favourable opinion about the conquest. Two names stand out that authored numerous embellished documents. One was the conquistador Francisco Pizarro González, a man I truly and thoroughly dislike. Please Google him. And his relative, a Dominican friar, by the name of Vicente de Valverde y Álvarez de Toledo. They were both extremely aggressive, violent and cruel in their strategies of domination and indoctrination of indigenous people in Peru. Anyway, it was by the hand of Vicente Valverde that the first written European description of potatoes was made. And boy, this man was not impressed. He describes them mm, as tasteless, boring truffles. And, well, at least he did call them by their indigenous Quechua name, which is chuño and noted the outstanding importance they had in the natives' diet by describing them as the bread of the Indians. It is curious that the original indigenous names of some crops didn't suffer much linguistic transformation. For instance, think of cacao that became cacao, aguacatl became aguacate in Spanish, and obviously avocado in English. But Check how different some of the many ways in which this tuber has been named in the world. Pomme de terre in French, papa in many Latin American countries, kartoffel in Deutsch, and Geminac in Polish. <laughs> what happened here? Well, check this. Prior to venturing into the colonial territories of the Americas, Spaniards spent many years in the first colonized Caribbean islands, which are present-day Cuba, Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, and Haiti, among other smaller islands known as the Spanish West Indies. And it was precisely in Haiti where they came in contact with the Taino culture, who were big fans of Ipoema batatas, which is the scientific name of sweet potatoes which the Taino people called batata. Spaniards, mm, well, they were teen-eared people and often struggled understanding words and pronouncing indigenous languages. So instead of saying batata, which is very simple, it just has a very soft B, started saying instead batata with P several years later after the conquest of Peru. Chuños became one of the many edible commodities of the colonial trade. And that was the moment when Spaniards started calling them patatas. And just follow me. This is when things get really crazy. In Mexico, many indigenous cultures were very familiar with Ipoema batatas. Except they were mostly known by the Nahuatl name of camotli. Again, Spaniards couldn't cope with that and called them camote instead of camotli. So, batatas and camotli for Spaniards became camote, and chuño from Peru became patata. And to make things more confusing, across Latin America, patatas are just simply called papa. And if you think this is the end of this linguistic conundrum, well, let me tell you that by the mid 1500s, after the colonial expansion of Europe in Africa, another tuber joined the party, whose botanical name is Discorea Rotundata, otherwise known in English as African yams. To the confused eyes and not very discerning palates of 15th century Europeans, potatoes, yams, and sweet potatoes fell into the same category, and in spite of their obvious botanical differences, it was decided that they were all yams. But now that you know the origin of this confusion, we can put this aside and go back to the moment when Spaniards went from having an initial dismissive attitude towards potatoes to going totally crazy after further culinary exploration and experimentation. But more importantly, they quickly understood the cultural and economic value of them. And so chunios or patatas became part of the tribute system of the colonial regime, along with staple crops like corn. This allowed Spaniards to control the price and distribution of these foods, which was indeed a very effective form of social and political control of the economy and the population. Like many other crops that travelled from the Americas to Europe between the 16th and 18th centuries, potatoes were met with scepticism and plain fear by others. Some of the arguments made against them were that... They were not mentioned in the Bible, they grew under the soil, and on top of that, they thought potatoes had an unusual aspect. Mind you, they all seemed too happy about eating turnips, carrots, onions, and beetroot. Now, most of us think of present-day botanical gardens as spaces of leisure, where we can admire exotic plants and the beauty of greenhouses. But back in the 16th century, before botanical gardens ever existed, royal gardens and private orchards and allotments in monasteries were places where experiments and studies about botany, agricultural methods, and medical herbalism were conducted. Potatoes were studied by European gardeners, physicians, and horticulturalists, who sustained an intense correspondence across the continent, exchanging specimens and comparing notes, hypotheses, and experiments. The funny thing was, they could have saved themselves a lot of time, pointless speculation and effort, if these and many other crops had not been simply extracted without any cultural context whatsoever about their cultivation, properties, uses, forms of preservation, and culinary preparation. This meant that colonizers had to invest decades, and in some cases, centuries, figuring out the best way to solve these things, and not without a fair share of failed experiments and painful findings, like the fact that potato leaves are very poisonous. And to learn that, they indeed made and ate loaves of soups until they put two and two together. But it is quite amazing that by the end of the 1600s, pretty much all continents have acquired potatoes, even when their cultural acceptance took a lot longer. And that is explored in the next chapter. Chapter number two. Enlightened potatoes. The widespread potato cultivation and state parked consumption in Europe was delayed for a few hundred years after its initial arrival. In fact, it is often the case in history that the adoption of foreign crops starts from the bottom up, meaning that long before monarchs were ever concerned about potatoes, at many remote rural villages and farmlands, people were already consuming them as early as the late 1500s. In different parts of Italy, Galicia in Spain, Brunswick in northern Germany and southern Poland. And because potatoes are so easy to grow, quite often they were considered as garden stuff. Meaning they would have been grown in kitchen gardens by women who actually made them the most skilled potato growers at some point in history. As time passed, the exciting 1700s saw the rise of new figures that would play a key role in the shaping of society and the birth of new disciplines. Botanists, naturalists, geographers, historians and physicians fell under the spell of science and the social function of it. The growth of the population and urban centres saw the need to ensure more efficient ways to deal with new challenges, and feeding the people was top of the list. So, potatoes then had a sort of renaissance, thanks to the uncanny alliance of physicians, statesmen, priests, and people supporting the idea that potatoes were an exceptional resource for the poor, which would liberate them from hunger and poverty. But chief among these potato enthusiasts, there was Antoine Dormintier. And not only he became the darling of potatoes, he really changed the curse of food policies in history. Now, while this book gives him, you know, a special place, I think he really deserves a lot more of attention because his work and legacy are too interesting and important to be simplified. So let's see. Monsieur Parmentier was born in 1737 and had trained to become an army pharmacist. First, serving at the Hotel des Invalides in Paris, which um, was a type of infirmary or sanatorium from where he pursued his botanical interests as a member of the Agricultural Society, conducting research on the strategic use of vegetables to create more effective ways to feed the population and prevent food shortages. At this time, the popularity of potatoes was at its lowest point, and rumours, superstition and ignorance had convinced people that they were poisonous, transmitted leprosy and were, well, just plain evil. But Parmentier was on a mission to convince everyone, including the king Louis XV, about the benefits and advantages of cultivating potatoes. At this moment in history, Europe was mm, politically unstable and the Seven Years' War broke in 1756, which was mainly fueled by bitter disputes over the possession of colonial territories between Britain, Portugal, France, the Habsburgs, Sweden, Russia and a few other kingdoms, including Prussia, which at some point invaded Paris, taking many prisoners, including, yes, Monsieur Barmentier who was thrown in prison for three years and fed a staple diet that mostly consisted of, well, potatoes and a few other vegetables, which absolutely convinced him about the many nutritional qualities of this tuber. After his release in 1763, Parmentier wasted no time and started an ambitious study, using all of the resources available to him as a new member of the Agricultural Society and professor at a college of pharmacy and school of bakery. In 1771, In spite of the raging propaganda against potatoes, he won an essay contest demonstrating that potatoes were an excellent substitute for regular flour, which came as very good news as wheat shortages began crippling bread production across France. Pumped by his success, Parmentier headed for Versailles and presented Louis XVI a bounty of our Andean tubers, flowers included, and managed to convince le roi about how potatoes could potentially be the perfect solution for the nation's growing food problems. Legend has it that not only the king was convinced about this, he even started wearing potato flowers on his lapel and Marie-Antoinette started wearing potato flowers on her hair, which apparently other women started copying. Parmentier continued his research and planted 37 acres in the Sablons plains outside Paris. And only three years later... Well, the king and queen literally lost their heads in the French Revolution. And Napoleon and the new Republican Revolutionary Committees put Barmentier in charge of agricultural issues, hygiene and assistance for the poor. At this point, potatoes started being farmed on a large scale in France and other countries followed soon after. And the author tells us that modern societies and governments at this point understood that famines are not just things that happen, but the consequence of many factors, most of which are totally preventable. And this conceptual shift changed history forever. But this is not the end of the legacy of this gentleman because back when he was busy promoting his treaty and taking part in potato themed dinners to try and gain adepts for the potato course, Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin were invited to take part in one of these events. And rumor has it that Jefferson was so impressed by one of the many potato dishes served at the dinner that he even offered it at a banquet, which apparently was a roaring success. Mm. And the name of this wonderful dish? You may wonder. French fries. Now, what Dr. Rebecca wants us to understand is that the potato's new status as a state-supported crop reveals the emergence of new ideas about political economy, public health, and effective statecraft that emerged during the Enlightenment, which slowly changed the state's responses to food scarcity. More complex ideas started to emerge, including the notion that bigger populations increased the strength of a nation. And so, a very early notion of food security became quickly embedded with the notion of nation-building and patriotism. Also, food slowly became a political factor of differentiation. Who ate what and why became the foundation of stereotypes. National identities were more than ever projected on national diets. But not everyone was a fan of the idea of the supposed benefits of an ever-growing population. Most famously, Thomas Malthus became an unpopular advocate for mm, a more measured approach to these which planted the seeds of social economics and demographic studies. But the fact remains that across Europe, Food supply throughout the 18th century became a matter of public order and central to the problems of political economy, growth, wealth and greatness. And potatoes were the state's best ally in delivering a reliable, nutritious and cost-effective food for the masses. In England, this inspired the creation of the Board of Agriculture and Internal Improvement together with a committee on potatoes, which sought to promote the mass consumption of ready-cooked potatoes and worked to make prototypes of portable potato roasters, which, believe it or not, became a common sight in the following century during the Industrial Revolution. The changing status of the potato, the author says, reveals the political significance of everyday eating habits in this historical period, and thus it became the state's business to know and to influence what people ate. Chapter number three. Free market potatoes. There is no doubt That moving away from the idea that famines were not the consequence of divine or evil forces was a good thing. Because people came to understand that studying weather patterns, planning and taking provisions were all important aspects that required careful consideration to ensure the resilience of food systems, even if they didn't know these fancy words. Added to this, the states were faced with the challenge of balancing the new notions of individual freedoms and public good. And on the other hand, setting limits to the unlimited powers of states was at the core of the ideas behind the French Revolution, which indeed sent shockwaves throughout Europe. Now, scarcity and abundance of food are factors that have shaped human history Forever, The food shortages of the late 1700s were the result of a terrible combination of erratic weather patterns and very poor management and planning on behalf of the government. The string of violent uprisings, riots and marches that, well, of course, in France escalated to a full-blown revolution became an immediate cautionary tale for other countries. To counterbalance these issues, the notion that people in a position of privilege, had the moral duty to help those in need, saw the rise of charitable initiatives that took the form of soup kitchens in large urban centres. So from Lancashire to Geneva and beyond, hundreds of cities offered free or you know, next to free soups, stews, potages and other meals for all and a common ingredient used across Europe, of course, was potato. But in spite of the enthusiasm of those who championed these initiatives, the food offered her soup kitchens was often met with disdain and resentment, described as watery, insipid, and in the worst cases, just plain dreadful. But that didn't stop advocates, who insisted that these soups were indeed a sort of cure, and source of joy and nourishment against poverty, politicizing the idea that happiness was something that state could deliver, and in fact, should deliver. These ideas were supported by many writers, including François-Jean de Beaubois, marquis de Châtelet, author of a treaty on happiness, entitled De la Félicité Publique ou Considérations sur les sort des hommes dans les différentes époques de l'histoire published in 1772. However romantic or delusional, as this idea might seem, it wasn't completely crazy. After all, Malthus himself had noted that hungry people are likely to be unhappy and prone to violent acts. So, idealized happy eaters were theorized as a key component of a secure, strong, and prosperous state. In many ways, subkitchens kitchens became a sort of social and political laboratory. Sir Benjamin Thompson, Count Romford, became, well, a potato evangelist, preaching about how to achieve public happiness by feeding the masses, which is the central idea of one of his essays called Of Food and Particularly Of Feeding the Poor, which was widely admired. And he went on to create two types of, well, let's call them business models. One for running soup kitchens and another for running workhouses, where beggars, invalid, destitute and children and other poor souls will work to earn an honest living. And both soup kitchens and workhouses became incredibly popular among politicians and philanthropists across Europe. One of the versions of his famous recipes, oh, because he also wrote his own recipes, uh, was designed to be as nutritious as well as highly pleasurable and contained, well, of course, potatoes, along with barley, beans, onions, salt, mint and chilies. It doesn't sound too bad. And he actually became a big celebrity that traveled across the continent, visiting kitchens and encouraging governments to adopt his ideas. At this point, potatoes had a 360-degree change in the eyes of Europeans. The once feared and mistrusted foreign tubers were now queens of cookbooks and champions of well-being. In fact, it was only a matter of time until a proper heavyweight like Adam Smith also used them to offer examples of how a well-fed agricultural workforce would lead to more productivity, greater surplus, and economic profit for everyone, farmers, landowners, and the national economy. So far, so good. But... There were others who saw with skepticism all these changes, and a good example of this is Kant. In his essay, What is Enlightenment?, Kant explores very provocative ideas, and he argues that there are three signs of an unenlightened existence. First, the unquestioned acceptance of whatever one reads on books. Well, that is good advice. Two allowing religious authorities to determine one's moral codes. Yes, yes, of course, we all agree. And three, permitting physicians to decide one's diet. Whoa, now we're talking. And it is this last aspect that in time became a key argument for individual freedoms and rights. And in other words, he was talking about autonomy in terms of freedom from being constrained by someone else's choices. There is no doubt that it is from the intellectual contours of the 18th century's economic thinking that we get the paradox that is what we eat is both our business and also very much the business of the state. Chapter number four, global potatoes. The dissemination of foodstuffs from the Americas to the world is seldom seen as a history-changing event. Because largely, we have measured the strides and advancements of humanity by the impact of movements and events that have either occurred in Europe or that were started by Europeans. So far, as we have seen, the history of potatoes in Europe had little to do with their culinary qualities and everything to do with their use in times of crisis. It is indeed very curious that while Spaniards were the ones who did most of the initial dirty job of colonizing the Americas, it was not always them who disseminated the many extracted crops. And one of the reasons is that the new model of mercantilist economy required the creation of commercial alliances, And that is how Portuguese traders introduced Mexican chiles and tomatoes, along with Peruvian potatoes in India and Africa. And, for example, that's why a French botanist helped trafficking coffee into Brazil, and British diplomats took potatoes into Persia in the 19th century. And speaking of Persia, these two diplomats were apparently insufferable And, of course, they hated each other. One was the baronet Sir Hartford Jones Bridges and the other Major General Sir John Malcolm. They both claimed to be responsible for the introduction of the tuber in such region and were desperate for the recognition and fame that came with it. I mean, no one really cared about it. And the important thing is that potatoes were largely embraced across Persia, from Armenia to Afghanistan. And it is quite remarkable that the creation of dishes that were only made possible thanks to the incorporation of foreign ingredients became so popular to the point of becoming a nation-building food, like Persian rice with potato tartic, a delicious dish made with basmati rice, rose water, generous amounts of butter, saffron, cardamom, and of course potatoes. What this passage shows is that European colonizers, self-promoting diplomats and other characters such as botanists and naturalists, really worked hard to build certain notions around colonial ideologies, such as the uninterested provision of means and guidance to improve the quality of life of actual or potential subjects, which is at the core of the narratives of imperialism. These can also be illustrated with the problematic case of Brian Edwards, a member of the British Parliament and leading member of the Colonial Assembly of Jamaica, who, of course, was the owner of large plantations that had more than 1,500 enslaved African men and women. Edwards wrote several documents that were, well, mostly popular among like-minded anti-abolitionists. Some of these papers included thoughts on the late proceedings of government respecting the trade of the West India Islands with the United States of America and a history of the British colonies in the West Indies in three volumes, in which he well, tried to demonstrate his endeavours as a benefactor who simply wanted to improve people's lives by creating plantations. And in his particular case, the main crop he produced was breadfruit, which mm, is slightly similar to jackfruit. Meanwhile, in the US, Jefferson was doing his own thing, trying to promote starch-rich crops that would fill up people's tummies on the cheap. And in doing so, he wanted to build his image as a well-intended fatherly-like politician, without mentioning a word, of course, about the fact that the success of such plantations in America was only made possible thanks to the back-breaking work of enslaved African people, whose skills and agricultural knowledge made it possible to sustain a growing production of rice and potatoes. In Asia, the East India Company, a private merchant enterprise who conquered, subjugated, and plundered India and the adjacent countries, jumped on the imperial wagons' propaganda, saying that they promoted the interest and happiness of the native inhabitants by encouraging the cultivation of certain foreign crops like potatoes, which not only displaced heritage crops like rice, it also caused a profound damage to the traditional foodways and agricultural practices that led entire regions vulnerable and prone to famines. Colonialism indeed had a key role in disseminating crops such as potatoes that had the purpose of solving food shortages and producing profitable commodities like sugarcane, all of which had the support of the fields of studies like natural history and economic botany, which were developed as a tool of Europe's ecological imperialism. As a very eloquent historian, James Edward McClellan III explains in his book, Colonialism and Science, Saint-Domingue and the Old Regime. And here comes a very moving example of a cultural response to introduction of foreign crops. You see, in critical moments of change, disruption, and chaos, societies will always try to develop cultural coping mechanisms to, well, make sense, adapt, and find resilience in new circumstances. The presence of potatoes was no different. Their incorporation into rituals and cosmovisions, or worldviews of India's culture, Are a great example of these as they became part of the foods consumed during religious fasting and also a prominent ingredient in times of feasting. If we step outside this book and analyze this case under the perspective that Marvin Harris developed in his book Good to Eat Riddles of Food and Culture we find that trying to explain food preferences and aversions will only give us a limited understanding of its role in a culture. We must explore the underlying cultural, religious, moral, and ideological structures that these foods have inspired to better frame and comprehend the function and role they play. You know, maybe I should do an episode about this book. But anyways, I think you see the point I'm trying to make. Now, at this moment, you might be wondering, which was the impact back in Peru of the global popularity of potatoes? Well, by the late 1700s, Peru, like other Spanish viceroyalties and kingdoms in the Americas, saw the rise of independentist movements led by the criollo caste, who were people born in the Americas of Spanish parents whose participation in the political life was very limited and mostly because of the rigid caste system controlled by Spain-born elites. Educated criollo Peruvians like their counterparts in Mexico were heavily influenced by the enlightenment, scientific thinking and republican ideals. Peruvian criollos became increasingly vocal about the human and cultural cost of the Spanish conquest, denouncing the massacres, violence, and subjugation of Amerindians. And in this context, potatoes well became a heavily politicized subject of discussion. For Peruvians, it was an indisputable fact that it was thanks to the indigenous people that Europe was able to grow and feed its population. And to the eyes of fuming Spanish colonialists, well, they were. true heroes behind the prodigious tuber's dissemination that now was feeding an ungrateful world. And, you know, something similar happened here in Mexico with corn. Because just like potatoes in colonial Peru, corn was part of dissonant narratives. On the one hand, conquerors saw native crops as lowly food. And on the other, they went around the world preaching about how kind of them was to share these foods with the rest of mankind. What is both uh, tragic and ironic is that a few centuries down the road, after the many ups and downs of potatoes' integration into different food systems, economies, cuisines and cultural practices, the world never became really aware of the huge debt owed to the ancient Indian cultures who domesticated potatoes. Then again, the world seems to have forgotten all about Spain's questionable self-promotion efforts as colonialist heroes. I guess that is karma for you. Chapter number five. Capitalist potatoes. Large-scale production of manufactured goods... The rise of merchant corporations and an increasingly interrelated global network were some of the many factors that contributed to a massive economic shift towards the rise of capitalism. Not long before, potatoes were seen by rich and poor as gods sent blessings and happily praised potatoes' versatility to provide sustenance. But potatoes quickly became a symbol of oppression and greed as the growth of industrial urban centres came hand in hand with large internal migrations that left rural areas without enough farming workforce to feed the growing urban population. These, however, became fertile ground for new experts to appear who spoke the language of nutritional science and so, with real concern the correlation between the poor diet of ordinary people and the risk of damaging a nation's economic success. They managed to convince themselves that overrated potatoes were the root of their problems. And yes, people ate too many potatoes, but the truth is that most of them couldn't afford anything else. Grains had become increasingly expensive, and potatoes were not only the substitute for bread, it was also the substitute of meat and eggs and cheese and anything else. In this chapter, Professor Earle takes a deep dive into the case of Ireland, of course, and the many factors and forces at play that created the famous famines. She also focuses on the case of a very interesting Englishman, a member of parliament, journalist and aggressive social campaigner who systematically denounced the corruption and greed of individuals within the government. I already like him. His name was William Cobbett. And like Shaft, well, he was a complicated man, but he had really good ideas. For instance, he campaigned to lower salaries of incompetent and overpaid bureaucrats and among the many pamphlets that he wrote there was one that still has a lot of resonance today where he coined the concept of cottage economy in 1822 he encouraged people from rural areas to learn skills not only to become self-sufficient but to be able to sell the products they made like bread ale cheeses and other staples He opposed the destruction of natural farming methods and forms of cooperation in rural societies that had supported for centuries the food system of the kingdom. Cobbett fought against the imposition of intense potato farming because it displaced native crops, rapidly exhausted the soil's nutrients, and he argued that they couldn't possibly be a permanent substitute for grains, milk, and meat. In essence, for Cobbett and other less vocal and less prominent critics, the political use of potato was the cause of terrible problems. By the 1840s, the population of most European nations depended heavily on potatoes, often eating them three times a day in places like the Netherlands and parts of Germany. In Sweden, The crop constituted almost 40% of the total harvests, and Russians ate annually 185 kilos of potatoes per capita. Yes, the health of poor urban dwellers and farmers had declined. Was this the fault of people's stubbornness and ignorance? Of course not. That would be victim-shaming. But many physicians and nutritionists back then had the nerve to blame it all on the population. But whether scientists pretended to be oblivious or not to the consequences of decades of state-led policies to promote the consumption of potatoes, the fact remained that chronic malnutrition was but a symptom of the larger problems that ranged from the growth of industrial activity and internal migrations and impoverishment of rural regions. Chapter 6 Security Potatoes This section explores the late 19th and 20th century shifts That reconnected potatoes to national well-being. In the late 1800s, England saw a growing concern about the welfare of the population. The rapid modernization of medical sciences and the combined efforts of the government and philanthropists, such as Benjamin Seaborn Roundtree, a social scientist and chocolate industrialist, who conducted three surveys on poverty, population and nutrition in the city of York in Northern England between 1899 and 1951. His works inspired new and more ambitious programs to tackle social inequalities. And for him, it was not only a moral duty, but also a means to prevent the escalation of poverty-related problems such as limited access to education, basic housing services, hunger, and malnutrition. It was largely agreed that long-term changes of the population consumption habits and improvements of their nutrition had to start at home, and that inspired many efforts to educate present and future housewives into the basics of domestic economy and cookery by implementing mandatory classes for working-class girls. The enduring impact of the First World War that went on from 1914 to 1918 forced countries across Europe to implement changes to ration and control food supplies for the population, which in time would serve as, well, experience for the following war. By 1916, Britain created the Ministry of Food Control. Similarly, Austria and Hungary had a joint food committee and Germany established the Imperial Potato Office along with the Imperial Evaporated Potato Company, which honestly I have no idea what evaporated potato means or what the evaporated potato company did. They also created the War Potato Company and Union for German Agriculture, among a dozen more bodies that served similar purposes. More or less, all belligerent countries had rolled back their previous animosity against potatoes and, well, again, embraced pro-war propaganda encouraging a greater potato consumption. Farmers were issued with cultivation orders and potatoes became the poster child of patriotic songs like, (coughs) eat potatoes with the starch, help the fighters on the march. A potato that you eat will help to fill the ships with wheat. (laughs) Well, sorry for my awful singing. Now, The second decade of the 20th century brought many concerning the understanding of relationships between hunger, poverty, and statecraft that defined a new way of framing national security. The new sociopolitical dimensions of food policies were clear about providing what we recognize today as food literacy to the masses in which, well, in the case of Britain, included a new strategy in the form of school dinners that aimed to educate children in proper dietary and uh, cultural practices such as hygiene, manners, and self-control. And, well, obviously the clear patronizing undertone of this approach was nothing more of a form of upper-class domestic imperialism. At least that's what the critics said. Which, to be fair, this wasn't exclusive to Britain, because in many other countries, my own included, in Mexico, since 1922, the government implemented programs to provide hot school breakfasts and other forms of public dining halls and programs to shape the habits and behavior of the lower classes of the population. Back in Europe, at the end of the First World War, there were many renewed efforts to better agricultural production, but this time with the support of modern technology, creating more resilient, tastier, better cultivars of stable vegetables. And well, this was imperative to prevent similar scenarios of scarcity... And by the mid-1930s, there were many scientific expeditions to collect samples from Peru. The competition between Britain, Germany, and Russia sparked a new wave of extraction of agricultural produce of the Americas, which at this point shouldn't really surprise us. A period of tense peace gave Europe just about enough time to lay the foundations of strategies of strategies and means to brace for the devastating conditions that the Second World War brought. Potato, potatoes, bye, 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 bye. potatoes Potato, Big or small, short or tall, potato peat has got a all. Across the continent and even in the US, campaigns to plant potatoes and pamphlets with dozens of recipes championing these tubers became heavily politicized and symbols of resistance, nationalism and home building. The funny thing is that It was pretty much the same story played in different versions as potatoes ruled the tables from Moscow to Berlin, Poland and Britain. With the end of the war and the rise of multinational efforts to ensure cooperation and the prevention of further escalation of conflicts, the creation of the United Nations in 1945 became a symbol of hope and unification, which rapidly put together bodies such as the Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO, which became a leading voice in matters of food security and nutrition that, well, obviously came with its own ideological baggage, as it was, of course, shaped by Western and really European concepts of what development should look like for the rest of the world. The impact of the FIO's policies, not always aligned with culturally adequate solutions to the changes imposed to traditional food waste and food systems, creating a new set of problems and challenges that, well, mostly affected the developing world. The slow shift to a more nuance, an adequate form of assessment and creation of region-specific solution, has occupied the United Nations for, well, at least the last 40 years. And in spite of the highs and lows of the political use of potatoes in the last 500 years, once again, we continue seeing efforts to promote it as a weapon in the fight against famines. For instance, in 1959, it was declared the International Year of the Potato, and this was repeated in 28. In Peru, in 2005, the government declared May the 30th to be National Potato Day, and similarly, Mexico declared September 29 National Corn Day, just in 2019. Now, because these aspects actually intersect with the research I recently finished for my last postgrad, I can tell you that the rise of present-day culinary nationalism around the world, but particularly in Latin America, has been the product of domestic cultural and economic policies, as well as international efforts led by UNESCO to promote the subscription of intangible practices, expressions, knowledge and skills to the list of cultural heritage of mankind. With that, all nations have been encouraged to identify, study and catalogue resources that will be framed and sort of resignified as Cultural resources, which are key to develop new tourism and economic models of development. In other words, it is no coincidence that in recent years you have seen a growing promotion of the culinary traditions of Peru, Mexico, and many other countries, which of course is great. It raises awareness of the historical and cultural value of those gastronomies and has enabled the creation of new economic ecosystems like. Culinary tourism. However, again, this came with its own particular issues, such as the invisibilization and limited participation of indigenous farmers and cooks whose heritage continues to be exploited and appropriated. This time, not only by foreigners, but also by middle and upper classes who, intentionally or not, have. Fetishized, exoticized and otherwise trivialized their traditions for economic profit and also, you know, as means of creating new ways of self-representation. And I will stop myself because I can get carried away. The point is that Professor Earl reminds us that all of these you know, recent changes have served as a fertile soil for younger generations of farmers, activists, scholars and cooks who seek to reconfigure the dynamics of the food production chain and create value by engaging everyone, farmers and consumers, with meaningful and ethical relationships in which, yes, the narratives of culinary nationalism do play a big role, but one that seeks to overturn centuries of prejudices and disparagement towards indigenous traditional food waste. Now, before going to the five reasons and why I think you should read this book, I mean, you should be convinced, right? But let me tell you a little bit about the author, Dr. Rebecca L. She is a professor and head of the Department of History at the University of Warwick. Her research revolves around the history and and agricultural significance of food, cultural history of Spanish America and early modern Europe colonialism, race, and identity, cultural nationalism, and the movement of ideas and practices across larger geographies. Dr. Earl has a bachelor's degree in mathematics and two masters, one in mathematics and another in history, and her PhD is also in history. And she has published dozens of papers, chapters, and you know conference papers. And among her other books are The Body of the Conquistador, Food, Race, and the Colonial Experience in Spanish America. The Return of the Native Indians and Myth-Making in Spanish America um, from 1810 to 1930. Spain and the Independence of Colombia. And of course, well, the book that brought us here today, Feeding the People, the Politics of the Potato, which was published um, last year in 2020. Right, let's get down to the five reasons why you think you should read this book. Reason number one. While the book does have many elements about the global history of potatoes, it really focuses mostly in Europe and, of course, in Britain, where the author is from. But it's undeniable that the rich analysis and the very enjoyable political and economic history she explores are indeed enlightening. Following the history of potatoes reveals how our modern attitudes towards eating became embedded in a particular version of statecraft and the complex and changing relationships between individual rights, freedom, and public policy. Number two. In the past months, I have read a lot about food sovereignty and biocultural heritage, which is why several things resonated in a very different way. Than they did the first time I read this book, specifically the importance of recognizing the contribution of farmers to the farming techniques, adaptation and creation of cultivars on both sides of the Atlantic. And this is not simply a matter of, you know, historical justice. I mean, it is about historical justice, but there is also many lessons and cautionary tales you know, we will be fools to ignore. So I do think she does a great job at highlighting uh, many important environmental aspects into the narrative of the book. Number three. The history of mankind can be perfectly explained by analyzing the way in which we have solved and negotiated our need to cooperate and our tendency to act out of self-interest. Those two things are inseparable constants, and of course, over time, they have become more complex. I mean, we no longer walk each other's head over a piece of mammoth. Instead, we work to create consensus laws and institutions to ensure everybody's well-being. At least, well, that's the ultimate goal. The fact is that today, 50% of all the potatoes that are farmed in the US are converted into fries, crisps, and other types of nutritionally poor snacks. Really begs the question... Where did we go wrong? You won't find the answer to this question in Justice Book, of course. But, uh, you know, reading it will help you understand the aspects that intersect and explain the current challenges we live. Number four. This book does a great job at showing how many foodstuffs, whether it's potatoes, corn, wheat, rice or any other starchy staple, has been introduced into another food system and how these has had enormous consequences and repercussions because they had inevitably inspired different attitudes, social, cultural, economic and political functions that have changed over time permanently and in a pendular way responding to the predominant forces, interests and needs of the time. So in essence, it will make you think of foreign foodstuffs that are now staples into your culture with a very different perspective. And last, number five, you really should need much more convincing of my part to get you reading this book, whose hero is one of the world's most satisfying foods, whether they are baked, fried, mashed, scalloped, roasted, or boiled, potatoes, patatas, or chunos are just part of our lives, and I can guarantee to you that after reading it, you won't see potatoes the same way again. (music) Well, that was a good comeback, and I want to thank you for listening to this episode that was written, um, researched, and produced by me, Rocio Carvajal. And well, we have officially passed the 10-episode mark and started the second season of Hungry Books. The title of the book I reviewed today is Feeding the People, The Politics of the Potato by Rebecca Earle, published by Cambridge University Press. And in the notes of this episode, there is a link for you to get this book, so you shouldn't have any problem finding it. And right, I have to say that I did debate myself over and over um about which potato book to choose to feature on this episode. Because, as you can imagine, many, many people have written about this tuba. And um, among my choices uh, was another book that I really liked. It's called The Untold History of the Potato by John Reader. I really enjoyed that book but ultimately I decided for Rebecca's because in my opinion it goes deeper into certain aspects and it's a bit more complex which you know doesn't mean that you won't enjoy John Reader's work which is why I will include the link for you to get that book as well and further your potato education. Remember, you can connect with me on social media. Find me on Instagram. We'll find the podcast, as Hungry Books podcast. Or if you have a lot to say, well, you can send me an email to hello at com. And the next episode will take us to the sun-kissed west coast of Italy, where we will explore the thrilling history of Limone Feminello's Sfusato Almafitano, a.k.a lemons, and we will travel to the 15th century to meet up with the Medici, and from there all the way to the 20th century to mafioso ron orchards, and it will be amazing. In the meantime, well, go check my other podcast, *Pase Chipote, where I explore the culinary treasures of Mexico. Until then, be excellent to each other, my friends, and more importantly, stay hungry.